This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hello and welcome to Episode 1 of Polar Geopolitics. My name is Eric Paglia, host of this podcast, produced in Stockholm, Sweden. We're extremely excited to have Klaus Dodds, Professor of Geopolitics at Royal Holloway University in London, as our first guest on this inaugural episode of the podcast. Professor Dodds is a world-leading expert and public intellectual who analyzes, publishes, and comments on a wide array of Arctic and Antarctic issues. This is part one of a two-part interview with Klaus Dodds, The topics of discussion on this episode are the new marine protected area in the Ross Sea of Antarctica that entered into force in December 2017 under the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources and the 16-year fisheries moratorium in the Central Arctic Ocean, which was agreed upon by Arctic littoral states and major global fishing nations also late last year. These cases perfectly illustrate some of the major themes of this podcast series the intersection of science, environment, geoeconomics, and international relations in the polar regions. Klaus recently co-authored an article entitled Antarctic Geopolitics and the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area that will serve as the point of departure for our discussion. Before diving into the Ross Sea and Arctic Ocean, I took the opportunity to ask Professor Dodds to share his perspective on the geopolitics of Antarctica and the Arctic, and his conception of geopolitics in general. Thank you for the invitation. I'm obviously delighted to be part of this series. I think the first thing to say about geopolitics is is that actually it's a very kind of diverse and interdisciplinary field. So political geographers like me, for example, don't necessarily get to define and police and, if you like, discipline the term. It's an unruly uh, intellectual field. So there's lots of different social theory, empirics, conceptual architecture at stake here. But to put it sort of concisely, I think geopolitics fundamentally is still concerned with the interrelationship between territory, terrain, and political power, political organization. And as soon as we sort of get beyond that sort of opening statement, then we begin to qualify it. And then we begin to, for example, to think about the importance of scale, multiple scales, you know, from the uh, everyday, from the literally molecular to the global. And we begin to also to introduce other important factors like temporality. So we, we kind of recognize that the past, present and future also inform anything that we're concerned with, with matters geopolitical. I think one of the things I'm very, very keen to avoid is giving a sense in particular of geography as being fixed and inert. So one of the things that my more recent work has really tried to emphasize, and this also draws inspiration from other scholars, both at Royal Holloway, where I work, but also from uh, a broader community, which is to think of geography also as very material, very elemental, very dynamic, and also to give due weight where it's appropriate to the the more than human, the non-human. In other words, that it's not thinking of geopolitics as something that occurs on a kind of proverbial chessboard where human actors, often thought of as states, are the only game in town. How are the geopolitics of the polar regions in particular different or distinct from other areas of the globe? It's a really interesting question because actually it comes back to this point about the elemental material. So if we want one part of the world that really, really reminds us on a near daily basis that the elemental and the 
dynamic, the contingent, really matter, it's probably the polar regions. For example, the Antarctic, during the winter season, literally doubles in size as sea ice begins to freeze and extend into the Southern Ocean. Over the spring and summer season, that retreats, it breaks up, and it forms as icebergs that get scattered around the Southern Ocean. In the Arctic, for example, it's difficult not to take seriously the importance of seasonality, the changing rhythms, for example, of light and darkness, the onset of winter storms, the challenges posed when permafrost is less perma. One of the exciting things about working in the polar regions is that you have to take the elemental and the material very seriously. I think the second thing that you need to, in a sense, try to get a handle on is how exceptional having said all of that, are the polar regions. You know, one of the difficulties I think we sometimes juggle with as scholars who work on the Arctic and the Antarctic is, first of all, to recognize they're very, very distinct spaces. They have very distinct histories and geography. One is inhabited, one is uninhabited, to put it very crudely. But on the other hand, there are also things that these regions share with other extreme, relatively remote spaces. You know, they've often, for example, been born bear witness to really interesting innovations in governance, in cooperation, for example. So we've got, I think, uh, with the Arctic and the Antarctic, this very odd mixture of some things that are really, really quite unique in terms of their earthly characteristics. But on the other hand, there are other things that are clearly shared. So, for example, when we think about say, uh, the uh, history of indigenous peoples in the Arctic, it's not too much of a stretch to say that we have to tie that story or set of stories with other stories about human migration, about, for example, settler colonialism, uh, legacies, for example, violence and dispossession, and so on. In terms of how states conduct geopolitics in the polar regions, is there a significant overlap between the Arctic and Antarctic, or are they treated as two separate sets of geopolitics? That's a really important question because one of the things that I think I should say right at the start, Arctic scholars, Arctic governments, if I can put it in those terms, are often wary of is people who study Antarctic coming, if you will, to the Arctic and saying, oh, gosh, these two areas appear really very similar because snow and ice prevail and they're both considered to be quite remote, exceptional spaces. And Arctic scholars and Arctic governments, you know, often quite rightly respond, no, geographically, these are very, very different kinds of spaces. One is a continent surrounded by water, and the other is an ocean, an Arctic ocean, surrounded by continents. They also have very different human histories and and encounters. But on the other hand, uh, if we go beyond that, both communities of Arctic and Antarctic scholars and government have made claims that the governance arrangements for both the Arctic and the Antarctic are either special, exceptional, or might work as a model for other parts of the world. So, for example, we've had all kinds of claims made about the Arctic Council being a very innovative intergovernmental forum, and we've also had all kinds of claims made by the Antarctic Treaty parties, but the Antarctic Treaty is a very special model, and after all, they might say, inspired a whole series of other regions of the world, for example, to denuclearize, to create nuclear weapon-free zones, for example. Both governance 
systems in the Arctic and the Antarctic give huge weight to the importance of science and international cooperation. So I think there are both profound differences, but interesting similarities in terms of the way in which geopolitics gets constructed. And to give you one final example, if you think about how these spaces are conceptualized by many scholars of Arctic and Antarctic uh, governance, they tend to think of the Arctic and Antarctic as quite fixed regions, quite fixed spaces. So, for example, when there was anxiety about the um, Russian annexation of Crimea and ongoing instability in eastern Ukraine, a number of commentators were quick to use the word spillover and to imply that actually there was a real danger that Arctic cooperation might be contaminated, if you will, by this worsening in Russian-Western relations to the detriment of all the good work that the Arctic Council and other bodies were doing. And I was quite interested about that term, the idea of the spillover or the analogy of contamination, because it, it, it really, in a sense, reinforced a view that I had, is that often when people talk about the Arctic and Antarctic, they really do have quite a fixed territorial, almost like container-like view of the region in question. The discussion then turned to the case of the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area and the article that Close Dodds recently co-authored on the topic. I asked Professor Dodds what the political process that resulted in the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area demonstrates, reflects, or reveals about the governance structures and the geopolitics of Antarctica and the Antarctic Treaty System. So my co-author, Cassandra Brooks, is an expert on fisheries governance with particular reference to the Southern Ocean. So it's very much a collaborative piece where somebody who's an expert conservationist, fisheries science, comes into contact with somebody like myself who works on Antarctic geopolitics. And what we were trying to do is to try and recreate and think about how this proposal for a Ross Sea marine protected area came into existence in December uh, 2017. So it's all very recent. And one of the things that came out of the negotiations was that the marine protected area will be enforced for 35 years. I might come back to temporalities because I think that's quite important when we also think about the Central Arctic Ocean developments as well. But it was a joint proposal by New Zealand and the United States. It was quite a controversial proposal, to put it uh, mildly. And it, it seemed to me to stress test the, the sort of the norms, values and expectations that surround the Antarctic Treaty System and the Fisheries Convention, which is called uh, by the acronym CAMELA for short. And one of the reasons I thought Antarctic geopolitics was a useful prism for making sense of this Ross Sea Marine Protected Area initiative was it really drew, I think, our attention to how the, uh, the maritime or how the, the ocean was being zoned, was being carved up into particular kinds of pieces. And the underlying logic for the marine protected area was also, in my opinion, bringing to the fore different kinds of expectations regarding the marine protected area. So one of the things I wanted to try and do was to say, look, actually, the ways in which people came to this protected area were very, very different and distinct. There was not one kind of underlying rationale logic. And we identify three things. We say, actually, some people thought the marine protected area was about saving and the Southern Ocean or the Ross Sea. Some people thought it was about securing the, the Ross Sea. And other people thought it was sustaining 
the Ross Sea. And we found that actually different countries, different non-governmental actors, were sort of pivoting around these different sorts of claims about what they thought they were doing over this particular space. And the reason why we know it was sensitive and controversial and, and indeed divisive is because ultimately all the parties concerned, driven by the need for consensus, could only agree on a 35-year so-called sunset clause, uh, which means that clearly nobody could persuade others that this should be indefinite or any longer. And I suspect what happened was, was that some parties wanted considerably shorter period of time, possibly five or ten years, and others were pushing for 50, 100 plus years. So the 35 years, even knowing how that figure, 35 years, came to bear, is interesting in its own right in terms of some of those negotiations and trade-offs. And I think what we can say more generally is that I think this marine protected area reminds us that actually the Antarctic is facing ever-growing commercial and resource-based pressures. And this proposal was not just really about the Ross Sea, important though that it was. It was also about whether the underlying principles, norms, expectations of the Antarctic Treaty System are going to endure in the 21st century. So I think it was massively important. And I think, to be perfectly honest, one of the reasons why there was delay and controversy, and this is perhaps comes back to the exceptional element, is that it becomes, I think, clearer by the day that two of the hardest negotiating parties were Russia and China. And I think one of the things that I suspect comes out of this affair is that Russia's commitment to negotiate over the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area was probably not that focused. And I suspect one of the things that might have surprised Antarctic diplomats was that the Crimea-Ukraine crisis and the imposition of sanctions was beginning to, quote, infect the special Antarctic spirit of cooperation. And I think maybe there's another take-home lesson which probably surprised the fisheries experts, is that science is no longer the trump card that it once was in Antarctic treaty affairs. Klaus Dodds and Cassandra Brooks use the concept marine spatial planning to help understand the Ross Sea case and other marine protected areas around the world. Here's Professor Dodds explaining why, in the polar regions in particular, marine issues are often even more complex and contested than the terrestrial. Whenever you deal with marine spatial planning, I think you're dealing with things that are, are quite troubling, if, if you will. Because really, when we, think of, when we think about the way in which we organize our affairs, sort of politically, geopolitically, it really is, first of all, fundamentally based on our relationship to land. Secondly, it's based on a presumption that we can draw lines and identify particular jurisdictions where we say one state, for example, enjoys sovereignty as opposed to another. It's a fixed-based system. You know, we, we put lines all over the Earth's surface, particularly land, and we say this is how we organize our affairs. The sea clearly um, has been deeply shaped by international maritime law and the, if you like, the zonation of the seas and oceans through the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS. So, for example, as all international lawyers know, you know, we, we divide the sea and ocean up into various discrete zones. We say there are territorial seas. We say there are contiguous zones. We say there are exclusive economic zones. And the further you get away from land, the sovereign rights of those so-called coastal states diminish. 
where we ultimately get to these very often remote extreme spaces that we say are part of the common heritage of mankind. We describe them as beyond the extended continental shelf. We say they're part of the deep seabed and so on. So marine spatial planning, depending on the, the sea or the lake or the ocean we're talking about, is, is likely to be a complex business as soon as more than one state is involved. And one of the things we were trying to get, say, in the article in general, what makes this so difficult is that the things that we're concerned with, you know, things like fish, for example, or whales or seals or birds, they move, they migrate. So one of the very, very simple but profoundly difficult things we're, we're constantly struggling with is how do we deal with mobility? Mobility that sometimes we can control and sometimes we cannot. But we're also dealing with other kinds of mobilities as well. So, for example, we know one of the things that causes marine spatial planning difficulties is that fish stocks migrate. We know that, for example, pollutants migrate. We know that, for example, the characteristics of oceans and seas change. Acidification, for example, is transforming uh, many of the world's seas and oceans. And that means, for example, as the living conditions, if you will, change under the sea, new opportunities emerge as fish stocks and other uh, living beings either migrate and move or simply die. Think of the terrible anxieties that many conservationists in Australia are having about the fate of the coral reef, the Great Barrier Reef, because here's something coral, fundamentally fixed, being changed by things that move, pollutants, acids, for example, that appear to be killing off that coral. So I think marine spatial planning sounds like quite a sensible endeavor, sounds like, you know, something that any reasonable party would be engaged with, but actually in practice is really profoundly challenging. Coinciding almost exactly with the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area coming into effect, an agreement to prohibit commercial fishing until at least the year 2033 across 2.8 million square kilometers of international waters in the central Arctic Ocean was reached between Canada, Denmark, Norway, Russia, the United States, Iceland, China, Japan, South Korea, and the European Union. This represented a significant expansion of a similar agreement that the five Arctic Ocean littoral states had reached two years earlier. A deal that followed from a petition signed by some 2,000 scientists to ban commercial fishing until the ecosystems of the CAO were better understood through further research. I asked Professor Dodds to elaborate on the new agreement in terms of marine spatial planning in the polar regions, the key role of science in motivating a comprehensive fisheries moratorium, and what insights into Arctic geopolitics the landmark agreement between regional and extra-regional states can provide. I think the Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement, Fisheries Moratorium, it's actually all kinds of things. Number one, it is a geopolitical agreement. It is, by its very nature, acknowledging that extraterritorial players, like the European Union, China, Korea, have legitimate interests in the Central Arctic Ocean. So I think it is a classic acknowledgement that the so-called Arctic Five, you know, the Norways, the Russias, the United States, the Denmarks, Canadas of this world, are not going to have the final say over the Central Arctic Ocean. They are exceptionally important because of geographical proximity, but this agreement says clearly extraterritorial parties matter. 
Secondly, I think the Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement comes at a very important time because it reinforces um, the significance of science. And I think if we then remind ourselves of the Fairbanks Declaration of 2017, which was about reinforcing the importance of international scientific cooperation amongst all the Arctic players and observers, then I think we should see this as a really an, an opportunity that was taken to reinforce the importance of evidence-based decision-making. And I think, again, you know, it's difficult not to come to this with also an awareness that science and truth claims have arguably been under assault in recent years. So I do think that's important. Thirdly, it's a confidence-building measure. What this agreement does is also to, in a sense, remind everybody that Russia is a key player as well. So without Russia, this agreement was also bankrupt. It was not going to be a terribly effective one. You have these different factors at play that means actually the Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Moratorium is more than just an example of marine spatial planning. Yes, it is an example of marine spatial planning because the, the, all the parties concerned, there were 10 parties, make it clear that they don't know enough about how this area may or may not change, and they commit themselves to further investigation, for example, of possible fish stock migration and the, the state of, for example, the ocean and the retreat or advance of sea ice. That was Professor Close Dodds in the first of a two-part interview for the Polar Geopolitics podcast. In the second half of the interview, Professor Dodds will discuss the recently updated UK Arctic policy beyond the ice, the importance of the Arctic in fortifying the liberal international order, and the prospects of an eventual British Antarctic strategy, among other related topics. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Visit the website at polargeopolitics.com. Email polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Additional voiceover by Keith Foster. Theme music by Mark Vandenbosch. This is Eric Paglia in Stockholm. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes of Polar Geopolitics.